Well, before I begin, I have to ask a very important question, and that is, who in this room are my gift wrappers? In other words, who enjoys gift wrapping? Okay, three of you, that's great. I am not a fan of gift wrapping, and our family goes through a season every single year where we have back-to-back-to-back birthdays and Valentine's Day within a two-week span. By the end of that two-week span, I pretty much put a gift in the middle of the paper, ball it up, put one wad of tape around it, and I hand it off. Because it's not always about the package, it's about what's on the inside that matters, correct? History has told us time after time, of these similar types of stories. In 2007, there was a man who walked into a thrift store who was a collector of old antique papers. He saw one curled up paper off in the corner and he asked the clerk how much and they replied, it's $2.47. He said, for that price, I'll take it. He took it home, he took out the rubber band and unraveled it and upon inspection, he found out that this might be something of significant value. It turned out to be one of the 200 commission copies of the Declaration of Independence by John Quincy Adams. It was sold at auction for $477,000. In 1992, a lady named Ellen Kelly would often go to her aunt's house and would want to play her aunt's antique piano. Well, her aunt had one of those untouchable rooms with the fine china, the table, the piano, and you weren't allowed in there unless company was over, so Anne never got to play. Well, sadly, upon her aunt's passing, the house went up for sale and the piano, and what happened was she bought the piano for $25 at an estate sale. She began to play for the first time with much delight, and it produced a muffled sound. They began to inspect it, and they reached in, and they pulled out a wad of old cardboard papers found to be old vintage baseball cards. One of those cards was a man by the name of Babe Ruth as a rookie. His card sold for $130,000. Some of the most amazing gifts are found in the most unlikeliest of circumstances. The passage that I want to talk about today is a message that gives me great hope as a missionary and something that I continually go back to when I assess the things that God calls us to when it comes to ministries that seem far greater than who we are. Let's read in our text, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to read the first seven verses. I'm not going to spend much time on the first two, so I might stop a couple times just to get us caught up on what's happening. It says in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, verse 1, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, pause there, this ministry as shows up in chapter 3, I believe this gospel ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. But we've renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. This is an argument of testimony. There used to be an old southern saying that would go, your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. In other words, if you come in with a message, but your life doesn't back that message up, it devalues the message that you're going out and you're sharing. And then we'll be in chapter, verse 3 through 7 as our main text. <clears throat> but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. 
in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Today, I want us to walk out with one main idea, and that's this. God is seeking glory, and he does that through using normal, willing vessels that he can flow through to offer his glorious gospel to a lost and blinded world. Let me say that again, because this is the one main statement I want us to walk out with tonight. God is seeking glory, and he accomplishes this, or he does this, through using normal, willing vessels that he can flow through to offer his glorious gospel to a lost and blinded world. I believe this text gives us three main ideas, and that is, one, we are to reach a blinded world. Secondly, we do this with a gospel that is glorious. And thirdly, God accomplishes this through using unremarkable vessels such as you and I. Let's look at those three ideas. This first is this idea that we are called to reach a blinded world. You know, for the last 13 and a half years, I've had the pleasure of living on a tropical island. And many of these people that came to our island came from what was called the 1040 window. They were what we would define as people who were lost. If you're unfamiliar with the 1040 window, the 1040 window is a stretch of land that goes 10 miles south of the equator, 40 miles north of the equator, and it stretches across Asia and Africa. It is in this strip of land that 97% of the world's unreached people groups live, and three of the world's eight billion people are. Pretty much you could throw a dart at any one of these locations and you're going to come across an area where the gospel is not clear. When I taught at Harvest and our classes, which our school was very blessed to have gifted teachers and we would send students to schools like Yale, MIT, or Harvard, which isn't the goal, but what it would do to an Asian community was they would look at our school and say, we will put up with the faith side of things in order for our children to get a good education. And they would send their kids there and allow us to have opportunities to preach the gospel to them. Well, it would be when I would be teaching, I would look across and I would say things like, take out your Bible. I would have students look at me with these blank eyes. And it was because I realized, and after talking to them, it's because they've never heard the word Bible before or they've never heard the name of Jesus Christ before. I always knew that when I was stateside, that there was unreached people groups, but it wasn't until I looked into the eyes of an actual soul that would spend eternity somewhere, and I understood this idea that there are people out there that have not heard of Jesus Christ. And it affected me in such powerful ways, and reminded me that we truly do live in a lost world. To help us understand the condition that our world is in, <laughs> I want to give you a couple numbers, and all these numbers are taken from what's called the Joshua Project. It's a great site that helps tracks the world's unreached people groups. Obviously, you can't see into each soul, so the numbers are a little tricky. But when you look at these numbers, they're quite telling. Right now, in, according to Joshua Project, they would say 26.3% of Americans 
would call themselves an evangelical Christian. That doesn't mean a quarter of the population is truly saved, but what it does mean is about a quarter of our population would align themselves up to say, I would associate myself with the teachings of Jesus Christ. So if this room represented the United States, basically one section would represent believers and the rest here would represent those who do not know the Lord. These are our co-workers. These are our next-door neighbors. These are people when we go to the grocery store later that do not know the Lord. And we are surrounded by an opportunity of witness that is quite huge in America. And we know that the condition is not getting better, it is getting worse. There is much to do right now in America, but if we step back and expand our vision, we start to see needs grow across the globe. In the Philippines, oh, forgive me. In the Philippines, if you can go back to the 1040, there we go. Right now, the number for Philippines is 13.9, almost half of the United States. On our island, about 30% of our population were Filipinos, and, and thankfully we're seeing some gospel resurgent there, but there's still a drastic need for the gospel in the Philippines. South Korea is coming in at 16.3. We're actually seeing a gospel boom happen there. The problem that's happening there is they lack good, solid teaching, and we're worried about future opportunities there. But we are seeing the gospel move in Korea, and at 16.3, we're still far less than America, but we're delighted to see some things happening. But then you get into countries like China. China comes in at 7.5%. And I have to admit, I actually feel that number seemed a lot higher than I thought it would be. But God has been doing some great things in China. While on Guam, the ministry I was with would partner with what was called the 2T program. The 2T program was an outreach that would bring Chinese pastors of underground churches over to an undisclosed island. We can now say it was the island of Saipan. They would arrive on Saipan, and upon arrival, they would create groups, the A group, the B group, and the C group. And what they would do is the A group would all receive names that started with A, B group with B, C group with C. They did this because when they would be arrested, it wasn't really a matter of if, it was most likely when, they wouldn't know the names of those they were in class with. And when they would arrive in Saipan, they would get off and we would bring in gifted speakers that would rotate in and they would teach them a couple years of Bible college in a short amount of span, maybe like a year or two, and they would go back into China and, and serve the Chinese churches. There's a great need in China. But then you see lesser needs as far as percentage when it comes to Indonesia at 3.2%, or North Korea at 1.57. On Guam, our ministry partner with uh, a radio ministry that would put in a gospel presentation into North Korea at midnight. They would smuggle in hand-cranked radios, and what North Korean believers would do is they would go out in, out into the woods they would dig up their radios, they were placed in plastic bags, they would crank them up for energy, and sometimes in the freezing cold at midnight, them and their families would huddle around to listen to the gospel being preached so that they wouldn't risk being caught and thrown into a concentration camp. North Korea came in at 1.57%. And then we look at Japan. And I have to admit, I really struggle with this percentage because I keep looking at it and I say, how is this possible? 
Japan is right now coming in as the second most unreached people group at about 0.49%. Meaning, you are about three times more likely to be a believer in North Korea than you are in Japan. If you can get a Japanese person outside of Japan, that number goes up exponentially, but inside of Japan, they have such a stronghold on the culture and what it means to be Japanese that they have had a history of rejecting the gospel and they have nicknamed the country the Graveyard of Missions. When you look at this passage, it, it, it talks about a people group that we're called to go. And this people group is defined in three ways. It's lost, like these people are, are listed here. They're blinded, and the solution to this is because they believe not, and they must believe to be saved. So we understand by looking at this, we truly do live in a lost world, and the situation that we are in is dire, and our time on earth is very short, and we must do everything we can to maximize our effectiveness to bring as many people with us to glory. So we understand they're lost. But it also says in this passage that they're blinded. This is the hindrance for them becoming a Christian. When you look at this idea of being blinded, a couple things come to mind. For one, it's when someone becomes a Christian and you watch this, this change in them. As we listen to these testimonies of these transformed lives, there was an energy and an excitement for the gospel. And do you remember you know, going with that passion that we talked about this morning, that excitement to maybe a coworker or a loved family member, and we share the message of Christ, and we're often met with these blank stares. This is why we can understand passages like 1 Corinthians 1.18, when it says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's because as we go with the excitement and the passion of this message that transformed us, until their eyes are illumined to the gospel, we walk into a world that's blinded and cannot see. I hold a record I am not proud of. I have probably lost more kids at amusement parks than any other human in this world. <laughs> I have one child I've lost more than the others. I don't want to embarrass them, but their name starts with an S and ends in an Ayla. <clears throat> and they've had a history of us misplacing them at amusement parks. On one instance, I remember this child went missing and it got so bad we would buy those Apple trackers and we would buy these watches you could attach them to so we could track her in real time. And I remember on one instance, we lost her and couldn't find her and our hearts began to panic. Well, after searching and finally finding her, and this is in Japan, so she stood out with her long blonde hair and we found her pretty quickly, I started understanding that when I found her, I was expecting to find a panicking child, but that's not what I found. And here's the reason why. Have you ever researched what an amusement park is? What the word amusement park means? What does it mean to muse on something? To think. In the English language, if you put an A in front of a word, oftentimes it negates it. Like a theist is to believe in God, an atheist is to not believe in God. So an amusement park literally, by definition, stands for a not-to-think park. <laughs> this is why we like going to amusement parks, right? 
Because if I'm at an amusement park, I don't have to think about reality. I don't have to think about taxes or work responsibilities or, or problems that are going on. I just get to eat popcorn and look at the flashing lights and everything is great. And when we found my child, I was expecting to find a child in terror, but what I found was a child that was completely happy and content. We were panicking as her parents, but my child was not in a state of panic because she was disillusioned to the position that she was actually in. She was in a lost state. She was not around the people that were there to protect her and to care for her, and she was totally unaware of the situation that she was in. This is what this word means when it means to be blinded. That we live in a world that's spiritually blinded and they cannot see, but they are completely unaware of it. So when we go with the passion of Jesus Christ and we, we share, we should not be surprised when the response coming back is blank stares as if we're looking into helpless individuals. And it says in this passage, the answer to this is very simple. It's that they would one day believe. And this is why Romans and missions is so important because it says, how shall they hear unless someone goes and how shall they go unless someone sends them? That in order for those who have not heard to hear, we must send forth individuals with the proclamation of the word because it is the word that brings belief and the word that brings light to blinded eyes. We look at this idea, and if we're honest with ourselves, I bet you in this room right now, we have a collection of individuals that, know, that would go, <clears throat> I know that we are called to go, but that is so incredibly scary. The concept of going next door to a neighbor with the gospel, or to go with that coworker that you've been around for five, 10 years. Our hearts start to pound, our palms start to get sweaty, and we get to be very fearful when it goes with the proclamation of the gospel. I remember as a young believer, I knew early on that I was supposed to share the gospel, but I was very scared to do it, so at that stage of my Christianity, my most refined technique was when I would ride the city bus, I would get up, I would leave a Bible track on the seat, and I would get out. And I would do that for days and days and days. I would ride at home from the public school. And I remember one day I put the track down, I got off, I began to walk, and the bus driver drove up about five feet, stopped, opened the door, and said, hey, are you the one leaving these on these seats? I got so scared, I just turned around and ran away. Because going with the gospel is incredibly fearful at times, but this text gives us hope because it says we don't go in our own ability, we go with something that is glorious. It is a glorious gospel. This gospel shines in the darkest of circumstances. It's a gospel who can take a drunkard and make them someone who is effectively serving the Lord. It's a, it's a gospel that can take a marriage that is broken and bring them together for something that cannot be explained by the hands of men. This room is filled of stories of a glorious gospel and we drew witness to four individuals that we heard their testimonies and those were glorious testimonies. Those are incredibly powerful because the gospel is powerful. And it says we go with the glorious gospel that brings hope to the lost. We're reminded of the individual that gave us this text, the Apostle Paul, and when you think about the Apostle Paul, if you go back, and you don't need to turn there, but if you go back to Acts chapter 9, you're going to account 
um, Saul, who would later be named to Paul, his salvation story. And the text says in chapter 1, here was a man, he was breathing out threatenings and cursings against the believers. Literally, his life was defined as someone who hated Christianity and hated Jesus so much that he breathed out cursings against it. And it says, as he went in a way, a light shined from heaven and stopped him dead in his tracks. And as he con had conversation with God, he ultimately turned to the Lord. And he uses this same imagery here of a bright light that stops a sinner dead in their tracks. And he uses this light illustration in this, in this text saying, the gospel is glorious enough to stop this dead, wretched sinner in his tracks and to save him and it can save you. This gospel can change the darkest of circumstances. I used to do an illustration when I was teaching at Harvest. I always taught in eighth grade Bible class. I loved eighth graders. Um, they were just at a very moldable time. And I would do an illustration where I would take a pen and I would draw various dots on my hand and I would turn off the lights and I would pick out someone way in the back and I would say, how many dots are on my hand? Of course they couldn't see, but being an eighth grader, they would still give an answer to try to guess and see if they're right, and they would say five. Go, hey, you're wrong. Turn on the lights. And the lights would turn on, and they would squint from the back and say, okay, there's about six. Go, hey, you're closer, but you're wrong. And then what I would do is I would get down about halfway between them and me, and I would hold my hand there, and I would say, now how many? And they would go, oh, there's about seven. You're getting closer, but not there. And then I would get right up to their face, and I would hold my hand there, and I would say, how many? And they would count, and they would say, there's ten. I'd go, you got it. I said, what changed? Well, when the lights turned on, you could see things for more clearly as they actually were. But as you got closer to the source, you could see it for how it actually was. And that is the same thing with us in our walk with God, because the farther we are away from God, we tend to not think we're doing that bad. But the closer we get to him, the more intimately we're in his word and we're walking with him in, in, in just that close relationship with him. His gospel truth shines on our light and it reveals our own sinfulness. And we stand there and we go, God, I don't know why you would love a sinner like this, but I'm so glad you do. And when I think about that picture, I'm reminded of the book of Isaiah with, with the angels in the throne room of God and their only reaction was to cover their body and their head and to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord because when we walk close with the Lord, it reveals who we are, but it magnifies who he is. And what happens is when we understand who we are and how glorious he is, what ends up happening is we understand that if God could save this sinner, God could save anyone. I want to ask a question. Is there someone that if I asked this, and I said, is there someone that's in your life that is so wicked, has hurt you so bad, that you truly believe they could never become a Christian? If someone comes to your mind, it's because the gospel stopped being as glorious as it actually is. Because when we understand clearly the gospel's power to transform this sinner in our own sinfulness, 
we stand there in awe to go, Lord, if you could change this person, you can save anyone. We're heading to a country that is lost. And we have been told things to our face to say you are trading a life of effective ministry to live in a land where you might give your life and see only 10, 12, 15 people through a lifetime. I go back to a text that says the gospel's glorious. That might be our story. But we also know a God who in your memory text tells us that he can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And that means the biggest thing that you can think God could possibly do, God can do exceedingly abundantly above that. I don't know what's going to happen in Japan, but I do know of a God who has the ability to do something so tremendously big that a lifetime of ministry, our prayer is that when people look at what happens, they would stand there and would go, look how glorious God is. God did something. This last part of this text is something, though, that really grips my heart. All of those truths certainly have impactful meaning, but there's something about verse 7 that I have continually gone back to for hope and confidence in ministry. For you who are serving and giving your all to what God has called you to, let this verse be a refuge to you. It says, but we have this treasure, this glorious gospel treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. What this is saying is that God delights to use normal willing people so that when they give their lives to service and God does something through them, people go and they say, wow, what an amazing God. I brought with me two vases One of these vases is very plain. It's very ordinary. One of these vases is sparkle and shiny. It's the type of vase that when you bring it out, people are tempted to start talking about the vase. This is the type of vase that you put a flower in and you often will hide it behind the other vases to allow the flower to bloom out and the flower to take the glory while the vase drifts into the background. This is the type of vase when you put a flower in it, people start talking about the vase and they start asking questions like, wow, that's a truly remarkable vase. How much was that vase? Where'd you get that vase? Is that a, is that a Hobby Lobby vase? <laughs> and you start going on and on and on about the vase and people start talking about the vase and actually what's happening is the flower is not getting any of the glory, the vase is getting the glory. But this is what happens in ministry all the time. We start to look at our lives, and, and when it comes to ministry or the things God calls us to, <laughs> we look at opportunities and we say, well, I'm not like that person. I can't speak like that person. I can't sing like that person. I, I, I'm kind of embarrassed to get out there. I'm not that good at that. Maybe, maybe I you know, sound funny or maybe this or that. So I, I just don't think I can do it. I'm going to drift off here. I'm going to let these people do the serving. This happens all the time in the local church because there's tremendous needs in the local church, and I don't know the needs of this local church, but I bet you there's probably needs in children's ministry. I saw one on security team and welcome ministry and various things like that, and there's probably a bunch of us that we, we understand there's a need, but we look at it and we go, well, who am I? I'm not that good. I'm not that talented. I, I'm not that skilled. And perhaps the excuses that we have been giving God are the very reasons why God wants to use us. 
because he wants to use the normal willing vessels so that when God does something great out of it, people aren't talking about the vessel, they're talking about the great God. I want to tell you my story, and I hope that it can resonate with some of you. I was saved a little bit later on in life, and I remember early on in, um, in my Christianity, when I was at Brookside Baptist, and I had people there that were investing in my life, and someone came up to me, and we ran an Awana type of program, and as a teenager, they said, Brian, would you be willing to sit one-on-one with a child for them to read a verse to you? And you would grade them. And, and if I have to be honest with you, I was incredibly terrified of that. At that stage of my Christianity, that was a big deal, and I was scared to do that. And I fought it, and I ultimately said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. Well, then after doing it for a little bit, they came to me and said, Brian, we need someone to do the five-minute devotional for the kids' program. I go, okay, no. That's where I draw the line. You see, before I knew the Lord, I had a little bit of a speech impediment, and I couldn't say certain letters. I couldn't say the letter R. Now, a lot of times if you have an impediment, you learn to speak where you're not using those sounds. But when your name has an R in it, you can't get away from it. So if people would ask my name, I would say my name was Brian. It was very cute up until third grade, and then it was very embarrassing, and I never wanted to speak. I always wanted to drift off into the background. So I fought it and fought it, and I got to a point I finally said, okay, I'll do it. Well, then they came to me and said, Brian, would you lead the children's choir? Well, I was in choir one day at my former church, And there was a lady named Mrs. Olison in our church, and she goes, Brian, you're in choir. I go, yeah. She goes, why? (laughs) Listen, I love to sing, but I'm the last person in the world who should be leading anyone in music. But there was a need, and I said, okay, Lord. Then they said, we have a teen service. Would you be willing to get up and, and speak for the teen service to the adults? I go, absolutely not. The Lord began to work on me, and I said, okay. And they said, hey, would you go off to Bible college? Now listen, I went into Bible college with like all these individuals who like grew up in church. I got in there, and they're talking about people called like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I thought those were diseases. I had no clue what was going on. My first week, I tried to witness to the bookstore lady at the Bible college, and then I realized I probably don't need to share the gospel with the bookstore lady at the Bible college. And I go, I'm in a total different land. I was so embarrassed being there because I felt like all these people knew all this stuff and I was just, I just didn't know the names and the times and these people seem like geniuses. I'm like, what's going on? And I get a call from Guam. I'm like, Guam? I didn't know anything about it. We went and fear and got there and met my wife. Lord gave us four beautiful kids. We started seeing God bless in ways I've never seen before. People were getting baptized. The church was growing. We were, we were spilling out of the, the seats like you guys. And it was, it was such a tremendous thing. And we were sitting there saying, I'm willing to spend the rest of my life here, Lord. This is awesome. But then Japan just kept coming into our life. And it got to a point where like, I would see a Japanese person walk and I would stare at them. And I would just look at them. And then I got to a point where I go, i got to stop staring. This is getting creepy. (laughs) Something has to happen. 
And I look at Japan, and if I'm honest with you, listen, we strategize, we network, we try to come up with the best plan, but if I am honest with you, there is a huge part of us going to Japan where I can honestly say to you, we have no clue what we're doing. This is a place called the Graveyard of Missions. They have built up centuries of rejecting the gospel. Great men that I have looked up to have given their life there in service and, and what would earthly seem like very little fruit. It is a very intimidating place. And I go there and I go, Lord, why not me? Or, why me? But then I'm reminded that the same God who went with me in a one-on-one, a one relationship, the same God who went with me when I did my five-minute devotional, I was terrified, the same Lord who went with me when I did my first message, it's the same God going with us to Japan. And I share that because the way that this applies to this room right here is God is at work in different ways for each individual and in doing something great where he is putting opportunities in front of you that seem bigger than who you are and that's absolutely true. They are bigger than who you are. And for someone that might be hopping into children's ministry when you're terrified to do it, some it might be teaching a Sunday school class that you've been pushing off out of fear or thoughts of what people might think. But some of you, I have to say in a room like this, and there's a group of young people over here, it might be missions. It might be something so big, and it's not just the young people, it's everyone in here, let me include that. But it might mean going across the world to a people group when you go like, how in the world could the Lord use me to get to that spot? Well, well, it's by obeying him step after step after step in each area that we fear and fear and fear and then we trust and we trust and we trust. So my challenge to us tonight is what is the opportunity that God has been putting in your life? Maybe it's a ministry, but maybe it's as something as simple as that next door neighbor that God sovereignly has put in your life out of the 8 billion people in the world. God knew what he was doing when he put the people next to your houses. And it might mean going across the street, inviting them over for dinner, building that relationship, and praying for a gospel opportunity. And if it's scary, that's exactly why the Lord wants us to trust in him and why when he does something great, people will go, wow, what a great God, and not, wow, what a great individual. Let's pray. Father, let us really take serious the fact that we live in a world that is lost, it has grown cliche to say, but when we really step back and think about it, we live in a world that many are lost and dying to hell, and even today there will be many who will enter eternity. Let us not just brush over that, but Lord, let us lean on a gospel that is glorious enough to save this sinner, that we know is glorious enough to save the people that you put in our life, and let us go with the confidence that it's not our efforts or our abilities, but it's a great God who wants to be at work in us and that as you present opportunities, us in faith deny ourselves and take up the cross and serve you with everything we have and that our life, when we take our last breath, what might be seen is a life where you worked and you did things that can only be explained by your hand. Forgive us for leaning on our own abilities or our gifts.
to think that that's how we accomplish ministry. Help us go with the confidence of a God who can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. We have been blessed in this church today, Lord. And I pray that the future would be bright, that Palm Bay, a movement would happen that could only be explained by you, that you would impact houses, you would impact neighborhoods, you would allow us with the confidence of who you are to go out into this world because you are great and you are good and the gospel is glorious. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the fellowship. We thank you for your son. In your name, amen.